0: This is Data Materiality, a podcast series about the ways in which digital data depends on physical forms and infrastructures and comes to matter in practice and imagination. The impetus for this podcast is a three-year research project by the same name, Data Materiality, co-sponsored by Birkbeck's Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Media and Culture and the Vasari Center for Art and Technology. My name is Scott Rogers. I co-host this series with my colleague, Joel McKim. In this episode I spoke with Vicky Meyer, professor of communication at Tulane University, which is based in New Orleans, USA. Vicky's research on media production and consumption and its relationships with economic and political transformations in the media and creative industries is well known. In our chat, we talk about her field research on the arrival of Google to a remote corner of the Netherlands, where the tech giant is building Western Europe's largest data center. And as an entree, I was interested in asking Vicky how all this connects with her earlier work, which was on television production. And so without further ado, let's turn to that interview, first recorded in June 2018. So you've been doing research on uh, data centers, but uh, some of the work that you have been doing seems to echo some of your earlier research on television production, Um, particularly your 2011 book, Below the Line, which uh, creates a space to think about media production work on the other side of the budgetary line. Uh, So while media production research often fixates on uh, creatives and professionals, on the other side of the line, which you argue merits more equal study, are the likes of technicians and other crew. So in what way has this previous work informed your current research pursuits?
1: I think at the base, what connects my work on Hollywood and my work on data centers is I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of media aura, this idea that certain industries garner or, or wield so much social power in our society that people are willing to do all sorts of scut work or work that wouldn't otherwise be valued in our society, and they're willing to do it in the name of that industry, and they get public subsidy, these industries, because of that, right? So many states and regions around the world compete for the biggest tax subsidies to basically fund thousands of people who work on a film set or a TV set for a day. So a job in Hollywood terms is measured by the number of hours you work basically on a production set. Um, so they're not jobs that we typically think of as jobs, like they're not careers per se. And I'm, I'm interested in that. Who's the person who, you know, gives up a day of their time, takes off their regular job, which they're probably making more money at to get $100 to be an extra on a set. And those are the kinds of people that don't get studied because they're not script writers or actors or you know, they're often everyday people. And data centers, you know, there's there's a certain kind of aura around technology and new technologies. But data centers in general don't have a lot of media aura, like, you know, I, I don't see anyone kind of tripping over themselves to be, a, you know, a, a server network engineer or, a, you know, AC cooling specialist for a data center. But some of these massive companies, you know, the, the big five in tech, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and did I say Alphabet? Alphabet, Amazon, yeah. Apple, the three yeah. A's their brands and so working for their data centers I would say has a certain mystique and it's a mystique that these companies cultivate because it's part of their brand value it's their aura that assists them in getting public support and public incentives and public subsidies so the things that Hollywood and big five hyperscale data centers share hyperscale being these massive server farms that are storage for the cloud. The things that they share is a way of using the mystique of working for them and the mystique of labor for them to get public support for their operations and ultimately enhance their bottom line.
0: And so you've been following the arrival of Google now to a remote corner of the Netherlands where it's building Western Europe's uh, largest data center. So what attracted you to that particular case?
1: I'm interested in, you know, the aura that Google and the like are marshalling around itself. And, you know, I come from the United States and in the united states that aura is already fairly well established you know since the late 90s you know these companies have been establishing massive data centers and what i was interested in was to see the process to see the ways in which um, one of these companies coming into a new location, developed in terms of the regional culture, the regional economy, the politics of that place. And so I was in the Netherlands, uh, I was in Amsterdam in 2014, and there was a announcement in the newspaper that Google was coming, that it was coming to a remote area that none of the big five had been before, or that was going to establish the first hyperscale center in that region, and that it would be the biggest in Western Europe, and thus do the most for that region. And the discussion, which resonated with the work I had been doing was that it was going to bring jobs, that these were going to be clean jobs, this was a clean energy hypercenter, that this was going to reinvent the region. And so I thought, well, I have a sabbatical coming up, and I would really like to, as someone who's very much invested in ethnography and field work, track that process, you know, so from the first opening through a year, see how it unfolds. Would you know, Mystique for Google grow? Would people be disillusioned? Would there be critics? Would there be resistance? I wanted to see Media Aura unfolding in real time.
0: It sounds almost like there was a bit of serendipity in... Looking at data centers specifically, like, that being in the Netherlands and seeing this announcement made, were you thinking of data centers before uh, that announcement and sort of uh, making that connection to some of your previous research?
1: That, that's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, on one hand, no, I wasn't thinking about data centers. It wasn't like I, you know, was desperately interested in data centers per se. I was keen to kind of look to see whether the same kinds of politics around Hollywood subsidies were being marshaled in terms of other media and communications industries. So that piqued my interest. And yes, it's serendipity. I happen to be in the Netherlands. So that's another interesting circuitous route. But I have to say, like, you know, I have to give a shout out to the last two, three years of deep field research that in particular number of female scholars have done around uh, data materialities and, and data centers. And I'm thinking of Astra Vondro, Mel Hogan, Jen Holt, Lisa Parks, Nicole Starosielski. Am I saying that wrong?
0: I just was teaching about this last night. I think it's Starosielski.
1: Starosielski.
0: But I always have to check my slides to make sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, her work is amazing. So sorry, Nicole, for botching your name. When I do projects, I like the idea that I'm in a community of scholars who are doing interesting work. And um, I just want to say that, you know, all the work I've done really stands on, on their shoulders.
0: Yes. Now, one of the things I latched on to, you were kind enough to share a paper with me. And one of the things I thought that jumped out of that paper I read was that, you know, if you look at the physical presence of data centers, it's perhaps in some contrast to well, the grandeur that we might associate with other types of media buildings, I immediately might think of something like these older newspaper headquarter buildings. Um, but of course, data centers do present themselves to the world in, in certain ways. So maybe tell us a little bit about how data centers announce themselves to the world.
1: The centers themselves increasingly take aesthetics and design into account. now. That's fairly new because a server doesn't really care if it works in a pretty building. From a practical standpoint, a data center is really just a box that holds servers. And the less adornment on the inside, the better, because servers need clean environment to to work. So, you know, the more boring in a certain sense, the better. And historically, data centers were invisible infrastructure. Companies didn't want anyone to know where their data is stored. But more and more, these, and in particular, the hyperscale center is so massive. I mean, the Microsoft hyperscale north of Amsterdam is one square kilometer big. You can't hide that behind a fern. So there's different techniques now for kind of announcing data centers. There's maybe about 10 design firms in the world who design these. The companies building these big data centers are in competition for having now suddenly nicer aesthetics. I wouldn't say they're pretty in any sense. They still look like uh, big boxes. They The ones for Google, they remind me of the obelisk in uh, 2001, this big black thing just kind of knocked on its side. <laughs> it's just this big, you know, square, you know, oblong thing. But they are in competition from a design point for the best publicity. So they become visible not so much... For their aesthetics, though, sometimes they will try to decorate the outside of the building, put some trees or some eco-symbology on it. But more often they're in competition for who has the greenest operation, because these centers literally run on more power than some of the largest cities in the world. They announce themselves through ecology metrics such as you know, power units of energy and megawattage. These are the ways in which an infrastructure that used to be invisible becomes visible, though not tactile. They're visible, but no one can go in. They're surrounded with often razor wire or electrical fencing, like the Fort Knox. It's a strange visibility. It's a visibility that comes that's highly mediated by other surface media.
0: And you've mentioned that you can't go into data centers. And that means, of course, then that they're not going to be the sites, at least for the foreseeable future, of media pilgrimages, or they're not the sort of place people are going to go and, and, and witness the magic of Google or Facebook in the way that you might when visiting a film studio in Hollywood or somewhere else. But if people could make pilgrimages like that, if they, you know, even would want to, what would they find? Like, what kind of, uh, you, you mentioned a bit of what's in these in these buildings, but what sort of processes or practices, forms of doing? Like, what would it be interesting or, or, or could it be made interesting? Well,
1: probably anything can be made interesting, right, if you, you know, put up enough video streams. I mean, it would have to be mediated in some other way. But there's a couple things, and one thing is servers don't want anything around them. The optimal operations for these machines is without any, as little human contact as possible. The hyperscale centers have been, like I said, they're they're a little bit guarded like Fort Knox. I remember the, I think the head of Google Benelux announced publicly that he hasn't even been inside the Google data center because he wouldn't add any value to th- the servers processing. Mm -hmm. So that's how few, you know, how little um, we can see inside those. But I've been inside other data centers, they all have tight security, but there are, you know, you can take a data center tour. I mean, most data centers before the hyper centers um, do practice called co-location. They're basically large shopping malls where you rent out server space. And so they give tours because they're trying to sell a product, which is real estate inside the center. And so if you walk inside, the most important part of the data center is what's called its white space. And that's where the servers are all located it. And those are often on uh, raised floors. They can be exceedingly loud because of the cooling systems that are trying to simultaneously, these servers have to be powered and they have to be cooled. So there's often a lot of noise in them. There's virtually nothing on the walls or the floor. I mean, they're just massive hallways. If you imagine a library of stacks of books, these are stacks of servers, row after row after row. And in service of the white space are all the energy components, the generators, the transistors, the backups, the, you know, all sorts of surge controls or different kinds of power irregularities that can happen through uh, the suppliers. And cooling infrastructure, so AC units, water circulation unit, ways of harnessing wind power, ways of using underground facilities like the cool earth to keep servers cool. So there's, um, and that's one of the the areas of kind of the biggest innovation is just powering and cooling these these machines. And those mechanisms can take anywhere to four to six times the space of the white space. Mm. So that's, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, maybe there'll be, you know, a front area where there's a place in Groningen that calls itself the data hotel, because they have little co-working office spaces Mm. in the front so that, you know, people can have meetings around their servers. I don't know why, you know, with a Nespresso machine or whatever. So, but that space is usually, you know, pales in comparison to the real main player. The data center wants so few people involved in it, because as one data center operator told me, people bad. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You know, that more people that are around servers, the more something could get stirred up and the more chance for some kind of failure. Hmm. They actually keep oxygen levels abnormally low in these centers because they're not for people. And low oxygen means that in the case of a fire, the fire can't uh, will have less chance of spreading. So the new, the new model I've just seen is now they're looking more and more to put data centers underwater. So then no people would be able to access them and they would just pull them up every five years and replace the servers that went bad. So, you know, as a, as a jobs creator, already the data center claims around jobs creation are, should be rather suspect because they're not built for people.
0: I was teaching students last night about uh, internet infrastructure, and it, it, one of the things that I think came across uh, or, or sort of emerged in our in our discussions is, I guess, another side to why data centers might be difficult, uh, even if they you know even if they wanted to have tours of data centers, is that um, it's you know it just might not be that interesting, and it's partly because and we were doing a reading of Dinardis, uh, uh talking about internet infrastructure, and when people students even but also ordinary people tend to think of the internet, they tend to think of what she calls its public face, like that you know thinking of apps and online games and websites and that kind of thing and you just you don't see you wouldn't see that in a data center would you and, and I think if you're going to a, a Hollywood film set you're seeing you know you're getting a little bit of a more of a, a, a sense of of the production culture that leads to the films you love or something like that so there's a bit of a contrast perhaps I
1: mean both industries rely a lot on cognitive labor which is of course in your head so i'm not sure you know hollywood's done a great job of finding other ways to tell their production story rather than having people sit in an editing room and watching people stare at a screen and you know doing cutaways and close-ups um so i'm quite sure i mean google And maybe Facebook, too. But I know Google has produced a publicity video kind of come inside our data center. So they they do find ways to mediate the story of their production process. and, And it is produced like a kind of, you know, get behind the scenes of your, you know, favorite apps. So I think that is more and more on the horizon
0: so you're particularly interested in one significant thing that google is seen to bring to this you know remote corner of the netherlands which is uh, jobs Uh, and alongside this perhaps the promise of working locally uh, you know to not need to go to say amsterdam rotterdam or eindhoven for work but not all is as it seems is it so who works at data centers like these
1: yeah so It's a great question. And it's not 100% known, right? Um, People who work for Google sign non-disclosure agreements. And so, you know, I'll probably never have the ability to go in and really talk to people in the data center. But working in the region now doing field work, you can start, you know, one of my strategies for my research is to try to put it human face on the kinds of people that Google itself reports as people who are affected, whose employment is affected by Google. So many of these companies, as a way of kind of auditing their own operations and thus asking for continuing subsidy will produce these glossy job reports. Uh, the latest Google employment reports for Europe came out in February of this year. And they for all of these industries there's a pretty typical calculus for how jobs are assessed, their direct jobs, indirect jobs and what's called the multiplier job. So direct jobs are the people that Google hires Directly to do the daily operations related to what they consider their core business, which is running the servers, the power and cooling systems. And the Google Center, which is forty football fields large mm-hmm. and cost estimated 600 million euro employs directly between 100 and 150 people which is not a huge bump one would say maybe Mm. in your this area of the netherlands has the highest unemployment rate in the netherlands it's in some places close to 10 percent in the towns surrounding the data center so obviously this is a region very much invested in increasing jobs but they can't look to the direct jobs as the source of that but in addition to those 150 jobs and those you know it's hard to tell, it's quite possible that those 150 jobs, some of those are local, some of those are not local. Some of those, you know, might be foreign workers who are traveling between hyperscale centers. But some are are probably local IT engineers or people who work in environmental controls. But it's it's not a huge number of people when you consider the number of people who are unemployed in the region. Indirect jobs are more, so that might add, I should say direct and indirect is between 100 and 150. So maybe directly involved might be like 50 people. And then another hundred of those are these indirect jobs. Those are people who work every day at the data center, but they're not what Google considers part of its core business. So those are outsourced and they're usually hired through temp agencies. So that that is a larger staff than your direct hires. And that includes, it's just a, a large property. So you need a lot of security guards, you need a lot of landscapers for the outside, you need cleaning crew and maintenance, you need catering staff, maybe some drivers, loading and offloading of warehouse supplies. And those jobs, which often market themselves as jobs for Google, are actually hired by temp agencies, usually getting close to minimum wage jobs without Google benefits. And those jobs are probably all local people. They come under the same non-disclosure agreements as Google, but they get none of the benefits of Google except for the thrill of telling their family that they work for Google. Beyond that, Google claims it creates 600 jobs in the local economy, which they call the multiplier effects. And what a multiplier effect is, it's a proprietary calculation developed by industries with the purpose of saying, so if we add together all the salaries of the direct and indirect hires, presuming that those people live in the community where they work and spend their money in the community where they work, that income circulates more money in the local economy and that circulation leads to more people being hired as restaurant workers, Uber drivers, caterers, florists, yoga instructors, you know, on and on and on and on. No industry ever specifies what is a multiplier job, but it's basically the idea that the service economy in that region gets a boost by having people with middle class jobs spending money in that community.
0: So it sounds like this multiplier effect or multiplier calculation, it kind of comes back to this aura of particular, I mean, presumably, it's different if it's Google versus just some anonymous data center servicing a lot of smaller uh, clients.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the the history of this kind of phenomenon, it really goes back to the Great Depression, when governments wanted to stimulate jobs in the economy. And so they would try to have all these big infrastructural projects to basically get people to dig roads and build highways and stuff, with the idea that that's good for those communities. More money begets more money. But that whole notion of that, first of all, it went away when governments stopped paying for infrastructure, you know, supporting infrastructure in their own countries. And then it became up to private companies that were competing for these infrastructural projects. And it's interesting because what you have then is this competition, which which industry is more sexy politically to fund, to start jobs. So... What you have now is a situation where industries, which may create less jobs, but be more politically sexy or viable to have in your community, they wager on their aura when they can't wager on the actual direct hires that they would make. So one might argue, why don't you subsidize Walmart? You know, like you would create a lot more jobs by building a grocery store in some ways, right, than a data center. But supermarkets don't have aura. So it's much more symbolically and politically more advantageous to instead seed data centers run by a company that everyone knows.
0: Yes. Well, Vicky, thanks very much for coming and speaking with me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much.
0: That's it for this episode. I have to say I was totally engrossed by the peek Vicky gave us into data centers as these peculiar kinds of places. But at the same time, pointing out how they aren't just important digital infrastructures, but particularly with google data centers sites of aura as well and all the questions that gives rise to about power in the contemporary era not to mention whether data centers really provide the economic benefits they so often promise keep your eyes out for our next episode and in the meantime if you want to know more about the data materiality project including this podcast series visit bbk.ac.uk forward slash vasari that's spelled v-a-s-a-r-i where information about this project should be easy to find